was just a lad of ten, my father said to me, Come here and take a lesson from the lovely lemon tree. Don't put your faith in love, my boy, my father said to me. I fear you'll find that love is like the lovely lemon tree. Lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flower is sweet. But the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com and joining me today, he is the man who played George Ruddy in the 2004 film Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm fine, David. I'm, f- I'm fine. George Ruddy. Oh man, that's, that's a rough one. Uh, yeah, for, that's one where your name is kind of your last name kind of just describes your whole character, I guess, well, in the movie. No, well, what happened was they had finished the movie, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. They had finished the entire movie, and the powers right. that be decided to replace George Ruddy. So the actor <laughs> who originally played George Ruddy had already been to the good show party. People had already slapped him on the back and said what a great job he did. Meanwhile, I went in. Two days later, and reshot his part, and uh, that's one of the things that makes this business so great. <laughs> <laughs> and by great, you mean soul destroying. So soul destroying, um, <laughs> bone crushing, make you want to just die. But uh, for 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 people who don't know, uh, "Win a Date with Tad Hamilton" is a movie directed by Robert Luketic, starring Josh Duhamel, Topher Grace, and Kate Bosworth. The plot summary from IMDb is. A small-town girl wins a date with a male celebrity through a contest. When the date goes better than expected, a love triangle forms between the girl, the male celebrity, and the girl's best friend. Boy, um, I haven't so, seen so, that story before. Where um, <laughs> Do you remember what George Ruddy, what, what that character was? Well, I'm kind of a boss. I'm a boss in an office, I think, of some kind. I see. And, uh, and, I mean, the main reason I did the job was because... They offered it to me. But the second reason I did the job was I was going to work with Topher Grace, who I think is one of the best absolute people I've ever worked with. Just spectacular. Super talented guy and also a skilled editor as well. You're kidding. Um, Wow. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, uh, well, uh, glad to hear you uh, stepped in and were able to salvage the part of George Ruddy from whatever the problem was in that situation. Um, that movie is Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. You know, speaking of movies, Stephen, I thought of you the other day. I saw this movie recently, uh, Mike Birbiglia's new film. Uh, do you know Mike Birbiglia, the comedian who's also a writer and director? No, no, no. I don't think so. Uh, he made a movie that I, I quite enjoyed. It's called Don't Think Twice. It's uh, I'll read the plot summary here from IMDb. Uh, when a member of a popular New York City improv troupe gets a big break... The rest of the group, all best friends, start to realize that not everyone is going to make it after all. Uh, and it really captures this, uh, this dynamic between these, this uh, group of friends who are in this improv troupe. And the difference between the haves and the have-nots is massive in the improv world, from my, from, at least from this film, which I have every reason to believe is accurate. David, you know? David you have peop- I have yes. heard of this movie so much. Uh, everywhere I go, people talk about this movie. I, I hear it's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if you if you 
are aware of this, but I still teach improv classes when my schedule allows. I mean, whenever I could do For the purposes of this conversation, no, I didn't, Stephen. Tell me more. Well, anyway, this, this is interesting in terms of the film. I have an exercise where I ask students to come up one at a time and answer a series of questions about their lives. And the only requirement is that they answer truthfully. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, anyway, over the last 10 years, and this is what's interesting, about 30 different classes, patterns have emerged. And it made me wonder if there are universal principles that relate in telling the truth. First of all, almost everybody appears to dread the exercise, as if we harbor a natural antipathy towards the truth. The primary assumption is that whatever we say will either be inadequate or harmful. But all of that changes once someone speaks. And it isn't that their answers are compelling, because often my questions are no-brainers, like, what kind of car do you drive? But it seems that the act of speech itself excites. As if saying, a used Honda were a minor act of courage. As people speak, they become more brave. Courage appears to be contagious. Sidebar. I'm always surprised that courage is never listed as a characteristic people are looking for on those online dating sites. I understand women looking for intelligent and men looking for attractive. And uh, if I were to be brutally truthful, I first noticed Anne when she sprinted past me in a break at rehearsal in running shorts. And I did think, hmm, nice legs. But over the years... Her most compelling feature is her courage. It still makes me swoon. In an unscientific summary of the truth exercise, people love answering questions about love. They love answering questions about being bullied. They hate answering how much they weigh. A surprising trait emerged over the years. First responses to significant questions are almost always general. They're accurate, but not revealing. It often takes three additional questions to open the vault to a real memory. For example, this is a real exchange that happened during one class. The question I asked was, have you ever been bullied? My student nodded and answered, yes. Additional question one, by whom? There was a shrug of the shoulders, um, somebody in grade school. Additional question number two, do you recall their name? Oh, yeah. Additional question three, what was it? Now the face changes, the eyes focus. Maureen. Maureen Parks. She lived on our street. She used to come up behind girls on the playground before school and push them down on the blacktop, and then she kicked their books. I saw her do it to a lot of girls. She was bigger than the rest of us. She scared me. One morning I was talking with some friends of mine, and she came up behind me and pushed me down. I surprised myself. I didn't cry. I was so angry, I got up and I started punching her. She pulled my hair. I kept hitting her. I punched her in the face. Teachers had to separate us. I got punished. They called my mother and sent me home from school. From then on, I always watched her on her block in the hallways, and she saw me watching. She was in my grade all through high school, but never in the same class. 
I always kept my eye on her. I saw her a few years ago at our 20th high school reunion. She wanted to talk to me. She was apologetic about how mean she was when we were little. She said she had issues. I pretended to listen. I pretended to be interested. But I wasn't. I surprised myself again. I still had my eye on her. I hadn't forgiven her. And I don't think I'll ever forgive her. I didn't think I was that kind of person. But I am. Wow. But it took three questions to get there. Three questions to be able to say the name. And I think it was saying the name that unearthed the specifics. The specifics that brought the memory and brought the actor to life. Three questions that moved the woman from being honest to being truthful. Now, you would think I would be aware of this, right? Teaching this, seeing it at work for 10 years, I would be more on guard in my own acting. But no, the same thing happens to me when I work on a part. My first reactions to a character are almost always general. I excuse myself often by saying, well, there's not really enough time to do the work, as my college professor Joan Potter used to say, and there isn't usually. But even when I've had more time to do the work, I don't. I have to force myself to ask three questions to say the name, to get to a more specific truth. If I can do that, the truth becomes something that has a life of its own, and my work has the stamp of imperfection. It's taken me a long time to learn that that's what I want, imperfection. Map makers have had a tradition of copywriting their finished work by adding mistakes to their maps that only they would know are there. A tributary of a river that didn't exist. A street or a village that never was. They could routinely check new maps to see if their intentional mistakes reappeared. It is their signature. Our point of view, our memories, our passions are usually riddled with little errors where we filled in the blank about someone else's motives or where we turned right when we actually turned left that define us in a way that's more truthful than any truth we endeavor to present to the world. In acting, it's perfectly natural for a first pass on a role to be general. When we open a script and see a scene description, exterior, park, day. What do we imagine? The park down the street? The park we went to when we were children? Well, maybe for an instant. But contrary to Stanislavski's sense memory, where I end up is in neither park. My strongest impulse is to exclude the parks of my memory because I'm certain the writers have never been there. I think of a generic park, a nothing park, And then I ask questions to build a new park, a park of the mind that has meaning, that has a name, and therefore has truth. Art imitates life. It's a cliche, but it's true. In our day-to-day, we almost always operate from assumption. Assumptions have no sharp edges. They've been sanded down by years of cliché. By forcing ourselves to ask three questions, we open a door to contradiction, to inconsistencies, and ultimately surprise that can make a character or a story memorable. So here was 
Here was a question for me. I was having lunch with my Aunt Miriam. Miriam is what we call a pistol. (laughs) She's 92 going on 22. She's still full of fantasy and whimsy and opinion. Lord, she has opinions. She was relating some of her personal history. She said, Stephen, it was when I left Dallas and came to Los Angeles that I finally became myself. Now, I'd heard this expression countless times before, but coming out of Aunt Miriam's mouth, it struck me as odd. I asked, well, who were you before you became yourself? Miriam stared at me as if the answer should have been obvious. I was me, but not me. I was not the version of me that I've been most of my life. Well, what is it that kept you from being you in Dallas? I asked. Miriam considered and said, Probably authority. She laughed and continued, Either Papa or the world or the way women were viewed by the world. But I came out here. Miriam paused and seemed to drift away for a second. Then she looked back at me with purpose. Stephen, I think it was the ocean that made me feel free. Every day I would walk on the shore looking out at all of that water. Do you know what I mean? Looking out at the horizon? I I think I do, I said. I'd like the ocean, too, Miriam continued. It's one of the hardest things about my physical limitations now. I can't walk on the beach like I used to. Well, I can't walk on the beach at all. I'm changing again, Stephen, and I don't like this version of me. Don't like it at all. Miriam made a real impact on me at lunch, as she usually does. It prompted me to ask the question to myself, when did I become me, the me I know today? My immediate answer was college. First additional question, when in college? Well, it had to be before I met Beth. It had to be before I started classes. It had to be before I moved into my dorm room. So it must have been the first day, my first day at SMU. And it wasn't even a full day. It was an orientation day. Second additional question. Well, what happened on orientation day that began to change you? I'm not sure. The morning of orientation, incoming freshmen were sent to Dallas Hall for a humanities lecture. I was impressed that we were going to hear a talk about humanities. I didn't know what that meant specifically, but it it was a very grown-up word, even a little intimidating. During the lecture, I was relieved to find out that humanities meant talking about nothing. I was in debate in high school, and I was an expert at talking about nothing, so I began to think that maybe college was going to be a lot easier than I had expected. After the lecture and discussion, each student was to go to their primary area of study. Now, for me, that meant the theater department. And maybe, maybe this was the moment. It could have been the start of my transformation because that was the first lie I told on my way to becoming me. Sometimes lies aren't pure deception. They're the shadows of the truth you're trying to hide. Once someone recognizes the shadow, they see everything. My parents did not want me to be an actor. They wanted me to do something responsible, like be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I wanted to act, 
but I didn't want to have a confrontation about it before the first day of school, or at least not until my parents paid for my tuition. So I told mom and dad I had enrolled in a pre-law program. Now, they were very, very happy about this. And in my defense, technically, I wasn't lying. In 1969, pre-law was a very loosey-goosey category at SMU. You could sleep until noon, eat a submarine sandwich, and take a class on weather and still be considered pre-law. Freshmen in the theater department weren't allowed to take acting classes. First, you had to take a class called Introduction to Entertainment, in which you discuss nothing just like in a regular humanities class. Completing Introduction to Entertainment enabled you to take acting classes your sophomore year so that one day, maybe, you could play a lawyer on TV, hence pre-law. Alan Heaton, one of the design professors, gave us a tour of the drama building. He wore blue jeans. This was cool, but troubling on several levels. Blue jeans are not grown-up pants. In the late 1960s, the only people that wore blue jeans were children or cowboys. It meant that either my parents were right and theater wasn't a real job, or I was wrong and being an actor involved much more work than I anticipated. Professor Heaton showed us the big Bob Hope proscenium and the smaller Margot Jones theaters. More than the physical space, I remember the smell of those theaters. It was overwhelming, luscious. It was the smell of lumber and electricity. I had never smelled anything like it before. I loved it. Every theater I've performed in since has had a variation of this smell, but no place smelled like SMU. And I mean that in a good way. Could it be that this smell started a chemical change within me that made me what I am? I did become an actor, after all. It's natural to assume that we're shaped more by what we see than what we sense, But I believe the opposite is true. The invisible plants its seeds in us as deeply as the scent of wet pavement at the start of a rain. After the tour, we were sent on our final mission of the day to get our dorm room assignments. I was given a map of the campus with my dorm, Morrison Hall, circled. It appeared to be close to the theater department. I had confidence I could find it. I walked out of the drama building that was kept at a dependable 68 degrees by Texas air conditioning into the equally dependable 102-degree end-of-August heat. I paused for a moment for my capillaries to dilate, and through the waves of heat I saw a vision, like a mirage. There were women, lines of women everywhere, all of them beautiful, every single one of them. I couldn't move. I felt like Aunt Miriam must have felt looking at the ocean, females as far as the eye could see, melting in the heat. They were lined up for orientation meetings and to check into their dorms. The sounds of their laughter were like the waves lapping on the shore. I was lost, completely lost. I forced myself to look at my map of the campus to get back on track. The map made no sense to me now. It could have been I didn't have the requisite amount of blood going to my brain. I looked back at the girls. I didn't care about my dorm room or place or my possible future in pre-law. I had lost my will to matriculate. Then everything changed. I saw someone in the sea I knew. Becky Anderson. 
She was a girl in our drama class in high school. I kissed her once when I was 15 on a field trip to San Antonio. Field trip kisses last longer than most. Maybe it's the vibrations at the back of the bus that have something to do with the longevity of the memory. I ran over to say hello. She was surprised to see me and thrilled. The other girls in line looked at us with a bit of envy. Even though my mother had cut my hair so I looked like Mo and the Three Stooges and my pants were too short and I wore white athletic socks, my arrival made Becky the only girl in line that had a gentleman caller. Being wanted is always a valuable currency, especially among girls in college. We talked like we were long-lost friends. We talked about mosquitoes, about how hot it was. Everything else seemed to vanish. I asked what she was studying. I don't remember what she said. I was too distracted by her eyes. I always thought Becky was a pretty girl, but now I was prepared to think she was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. I was struck by the horrifying notion that maybe this was nature's plan. For me to get lost in a sea of women only to be found in a single woman's eyes. I shocked myself when I opened my mouth and said, So, Becky, uh, you want to go out sometime? I was even more shocked when she said, Yes, again with a sort of enthusiasm that made me feel whole. My cognitive skills returned. I saw a three-dimensional map of the entire SMU campus in my brain. I identified Morrison Hall and my current location in relationship to it. I estimated I was less than 500 yards away. I was back on track. I was off. I shouted back, Goodbye, Becky. I have to get to my dorm room now. I'm at Morrison Hall. I'll call you. In the excitement, I forgot I did not have a phone, and I didn't have her phone number. Could that have been the moment I became me, my desire to be close to Becky? Not for sex, even though, okay, okay, I'm sure that sex was part of it, but I didn't really know much about sex at the time. I didn't even know much about Becky. For example, I didn't know she was a classical pianist. Not only that, but she was one of the best young pianists in the city. Check that, one of the best young pianists in the country. She had won many piano competitions at this time and had already played a Prokofiev piece with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. I knew none of that. All I knew was that kiss at the back of the bus. And that was enough for me to long for her embrace. Maybe it is the embrace that makes us who we are. The first thing we experience when we're born is cold and light this harsh entry into the world is soothed by our mother's first embrace, and we spend the rest of our lives in pursuit of it again. We long for something that holds us so completely, like music, like theater, like drugs, like sex, like politics, like science, like God. If the pursuit of our embrace is what defines us, then what we choose as an embrace predicts the possibility of our potential happiness. That's the difference between riding horses and studying Shakespeare. Both provide an embrace, but you're less likely to break your neck playing bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream. I arrived at my dorm. I looked at the information sheet, room 410. I began to climb. The fourth floor was noisy and chaotic, caused in large part by so many people learning at the same time they would have to use a communal bathroom. My room was locked. 
A random freshman jogged by explained that the floor monitor had all of the keys, and he pointed to a room at the end of the hall. I thanked him and began walking towards the light. I arrived at the open door at the end of the hallway. Hello, I said. A young man with curly hair and a grim expression was sitting at his desk. He swiveled around to face me and tried to smile. Hello, I'm Howard. I'm the floor monitor. Howard didn't match my image of authority. He was barefooted and wore gray sweatpants. His ensemble was completed by an old plaid shirt misbuttoned in front with sleeves unevenly rolled up his forearms. Howard did have one thing going for him in the leadership department. His constant expression of distress could easily be mistaken for empathy. He stood up and retied his sweatpants. How can I help you? he asked. Uh, Someone told me you have the keys to the rooms? Howard put on a pair of wired-rimmed glasses and grabbed his paperwork. Maybe I do. What's your name? Uh, Tobolowski. Stephen. Stephen Tobolowski. He checked his list. Yep. There you are. 410. Come on. We started walking and talking to the other end of the hallway. Have you met your roommate yet? He asked. No, no, I haven't. Well, he hasn't checked in. He's in the theater department, too. Oh, good, good. Well, I'll be on the lookout. Yeah. You let me know if you see him. How long have you been a floor monitor here, I asked. About two hours. Today's the first day of school, but I'm a senior, so they figure I know the ropes. Have you always lived at Morrison Hall? Howard looked at me with amazement. I don't live here. I'm a senior. I'm married. My wife and I have an apartment off campus. But you're a floor monitor. I mean, doesn't that mean you have to live on the floor? Well, they pay me to live on the floor during the semester. But I really live with my wife. I get to see her when I have a day off. How often is that? About every two weeks. You only see your wife every two weeks? Yeah. Wow. Well... That's the job. Howard cracked the smallest hint of a smile. Are you graduating this year, Howard? Most likely. What in? I'm a music major. You're kidding. I love music. Are you going to teach? I hope not. I'm a composer. I write symphonies. Really? Yes, said Howard. How do you make money writing symphonies? Right now, I'm a floor monitor. Here's your room. Howard unlocked the door. It swung open. The dorm room looked like pictures I've seen of the inside of submarines. It was about 12 feet long and 8 feet wide. In that space, they fit two single beds, two desks, two sets of bookshelves, and two closets. There was a neutral zone of about 3 feet between the beds, and in the center of the facing wall was a window big enough to let in the morning sun or an evening breeze. More than the bed, more than the bookshelf. My window to the world gave me a sense of ownership. I felt the gravity of Howard lurking behind me. This is it. Uh, it's small, I said. Yeah, they're all small, but it'll work. Howard stepped up and looked at me gravely. Here's the key. Uh, Thank you. Keep it safe.
like on a keychain or something? You have a keychain? Yes, yes. I reached into my pants and realized, oh, no, no, I, I, <laughs> I don't have a keychain, Howard. When I drive, I use my mother's car, so I use her keychain. Howard shook his head. No. You need your own keychain. Well, well, I'll get one. Right now, I'll just put it in my pocket. Howard looked like he just smelled sour milk. Better if it's on a keychain. Harder to lose. Right, right. You think they'd have one at the dime store? I'm sure they do. They have an Emmy Moses in Snyder Plaza. Should be able to fix you up. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for the advice. Yep, that's why I'm here. Let me know if you run into that roommate. I sat on my built-in desk looking out at my dorm room window. My mind was alternating between potential futures. From my window, I could see girls walking and talking on the way to the dorms across the courtyard. I wondered if Becky lived nearby. I wondered if I would ever see her again. I watched athletes walking to the practice fields down the road. I wondered what my life would have been like if I hadn't gotten sick and was able to stay in baseball. Would the life of being a potential first baseman be any less stressful than the life of being a potential Hamlet? My first day of college was filled with many revelations. Probably the most important was I had reached a stage in my life when I needed my own keychain. Then I heard a voice, a new voice, one that startled me. It was nasal, pinched, slurred in a sort of uneducated southern way, not at all pleasing. Who are you? person said. I turned. There was a fellow standing in the doorway. His hair was cut like Richard Burton and Cleopatra. He was not handsome, but not homely. My immediate assessment? This must be my roommate. I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. Jim. Jim McClure. He didn't smile. He walked up and shook my hand, but not in a friendly way, more like a car salesman when they first meet you. He was shorter than I was, but powerfully built. Sort of. He had a body like Bluto in the Popeye cartoons, huge chest and biceps, skinny legs. He looked me over. So, what do you do? Um, I'm in the theater department. I'm an actor. I, <laughs> I guess I'm your roommate. Jim looked like he just stepped on a turd. Well, this ain't gonna work, Jim said. What isn't going to work? You. We need to talk to someone. Who's in charge of roommates? I need someone else. What's wrong with me, I asked. Jim shook his head. Where do I begin? It's best if we just start fresh with someone new. Well, this is fresh. I mean, we just met. I don't even remember your name. McClure. Jim McClure. Let's find someone and make the switch. Well, I guess we could talk to Howard. Who's Howard? He's the floor monitor. He's a senior. If you catch him on the right day, he lives at the end of the hall. Well, let's go see Howard. We knocked on Howard's open door. He turned in his chair and looked at us with a preemptive deep concern. Jim stepped forward and gave him his Oldsmobile salesman handshake. Hello, Jim McClure. 
Hello? I was hoping you'd get here. I'm Howard. I'm the floor monitor. Right, said Jim. Howard grabbed his paperwork. You are 410, check. And I see you met your roommate, check. Yeah, uh, we need to change that. Change what? Roommates, Jim said. Change roommates, why? I don't like him. Howard looked at me and nodded sympathetically with Jim. Well, there's always a lot of stress the first day. What happened? Nothing happened, I said. Jim stepped forward and spoke more privately to Howard. Look, I get it. I may be from Shreveport, but I know what you guys are doing. Howard looked at Jim, trying to unravel the conspiracy. I don't understand. What are we doing? You want to put all your fags together? So you get all the theater majors and you put them on the fourth floor. Well, I'm not a fag. I step forward in mild protest. Hey, I'm not a fag either. I just asked Becky Anderson out on a date. Jim cut me off. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you ask Becky Anderson out. They don't know that. They just stuck us together because they assume we're theater department fags. Uh, no, we didn't. Howard said with reassuring calm. We don't know about any of that. We don't care. But Jim, you are right. We do put theater majors together. We put math majors together too, philosophy majors. The idea is the two of you would have more in common. Do homework together, maybe have classes together. Jim looked back at me one more time. Well, I want to change roommates anyway. Howard checked his sheet and frowned. Well, we're all checked in. You have to wait and see if we get an opening. Does that happen? All the time. People drop out, transfer, people die. Really? People die in here? Jim asked. Sure. Especially around exam time. Usually of natural causes. If you consider driving drunk natural. But a room could open up. Howard stepped up to me and spoke somewhat confidentially. Stephen, what kind of music do you like? Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, I said. And how about you, Jim? Uh, Tony Bennett? Howard considered. It'll be fine, guys. Give it time. It'll work out. Jim shrugged. Okay, but you let me know if someone dies. Will do. Good luck. The room crisis passed. But with the help of Howard, I managed to achieve another benchmark of adulthood, surviving the undeserved disrespect of strangers. In retrospect, this was a major step in becoming me. Jim left to check out the drama department, and I drove over to Snyder Plaza and bought my keychain. I beat the traffic crossing the Trinity River back to Oak Cliff. At no time during my drive did it ever occur to me that with the exception of holidays and occasional weekends, this would be the last day in my childhood home. My last regular meal cooked by my mother. My last night in my bedroom, where I had slept since I was four, where I the monster lived and occasionally came out of the toy closet to talk to me, give me advice. Our last dinner was nothing special. I don't recall what we ate. Could have been my favorite, ham and tater tots. Could have been spaghetti, which my sister loved. Frozen fish fillets with green beans baked potato. Yeah, those were popular menu items. 
I never thought that sitting at that kitchen table and sharing all of those meals together was anything to cherish. (laughs) Foolish me. We're all prisoners of priorities. We like to think of ourselves as elevated creatures, but all of us are enamored of the shiny object. For human beings, the shiniest object is always what's on top of our list. The top of my family's list that night and throughout most of my childhood was the fall television lineup. After dinner, we moved directly from the kitchen table to our respective spots around the TV set in the living room without taking a break from eating. We never stopped. At our home, we moved seamlessly from supper to snacks, from brisket to fritos, from lima beans to orange popsicles, washed down with bottles of RC Cola. In the late 1960s, the priority was having a healthy appetite. The debate over what you ate was years away. I still had at least a decade to work on my congestive heart disease. Once I ate an entire package of uncooked hot dogs during Ben Casey. Mom asked me if I had enough for dinner. I told her, yes, Mom. I was just imagining I was eating a giant's fingers and toes. That explanation gave her comfort for some reason. Sidebar, I don't recall any family disagreements over what we watched on television. Dad was the boss. But usually Dad was too tired after work to get up and change the channels. Well, there were only three back then. Four if you counted PBS that mainly showed driver's education with Herman Cruz. Five if you counted Channel 11 that showed the Three Stooges and old movies. My brother and I exploited this weakness. We enjoyed Laugh-In, Bewitched, The Beverly Hillbillies, I Spy. We even loved the more mature programming like Bob Hope Chrysler Theater and Johnny Yuma, The Rebel. Had I fully realized that this would be my last night with access to a television set for years, I might have given up on higher education. At one point, Mom told me not to worry. She thought Morrison Hall had a TV in the lobby. She lied. Morrison Hall had no TV. It didn't even have a lobby. When the local news started at 10, I decided to call it a night. I knew nothing happened in Dallas. I kissed Mom and adjourned to my little bed. I turned on the old clock radio Dad gave me when he bought a new clock radio. I listened to the hit songs of the day, songs about living in the year 2525, songs that I still don't understand about Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion, the only song that made sense to me that I knew was true was that one was the loneliest number. I lay in bed flooded with anxiety, wondering what it would take to coax I out of the closet one more time. (laughs) Maybe if I called to him, if I laid my soul bare and said, I need help, I. Everything is so new. I'm scared. I would probably come out of the closet and answer, Don't worry, Stevie. It's all part of living. Things are either new or done. So new isn't so bad. If I were you, I would concentrate on getting Becky Anderson's phone number. Thank you, I. Hey, what can you expect when you ask a monster for advice? I would have to figure this one out on my own. The next morning, Mom gave me $10 spending money. She drove me across town and dropped me off in front of Morrison Hall. She told me to have a good week. Told me she picked me up on the weekend. I grabbed my laundry sack filled with clean clothes and started off on my new life 
the day after the day I became myself. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. That was Three Questions, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to the Tobolowsky Files. You know, Stephen, speaking of uh, events where you knew you were becoming yourself, wh- where does the Tobolowsky Files rank on that on that scale? David, big time. How, how well has the Tobolowsky <laughs> Files actualized you, just out of curiosity? Well, just, to t- just as a spoiler, that is going to be happening in another couple of episodes as to what this podcast has done to me becoming myself. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your story with us today, Stephen. Find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. Uh, find Stephen's new website at StephenTobolowski.com. Find all of my stuff at DaveChen.net. Stephen, you are traveling around the country. You're going to be places. You're going to be reading from your book. Where are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be at the Horshaw Auditorium in Dallas, Texas at the Art Museum. That's April 18th. Then April 19th, I'm going to be at Congregation B'nai Emunah in Tulsa. And then afterwards, I'm going to be at the Circle Cinema for an opening of, gra- of a screening of Groundhog Day. That is on the 19th of April. Then I'm going to be in Los Angeles at the LA Times Festival of Books. Uh, I'm going to be going on at about 1 p.m. Then I'm going to jet up to San Francisco. I'm going to be at the JCC. That is going to be on uh, April 24th. And then I'm going to slide over to Seattle on April 25th for the town hall. And I'm going to give you one more here, David. Uh, I'm going to be at uh, Woodstock, New York on April 28th. And I'm going to be the speaker there. It's, It's beautiful in Woodstock if you haven't been there. And I'll give the May dates next time. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, if you have a chance, check Stephen out at one of those live performances. I'm looking forward to seeing him at Town Hall in Seattle. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. A hundred miles